welcome to Girls Gone Canon. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor, on Twitter, and also on Tumblr as Lies and Arbor. Hello, I'm Eliana, another one of your hosts, and you can find me as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly podcast and always on the Asanga of Ice and Fire subreddit. It's here. We're here. Oh, Dad, no. No. It's our, it's our eighth episode of Eddard's Start. And the week of Father's Day, nonetheless. Oh my gosh, I didn't even plan that. That's really... Me neither. Yeah. It was fate. It was fate. We chose that. It was the o- it was so powerful. There was an omen a few years ago where um, we found a dead calendar uh, date with a staghorn. I should stop. Yeah, I don't think we did that. I think we did. No. I, I like where your head's at, but I Thank don't you. think that's... You're welcome. Wow. I don't know. I feel like I should be more emotional, and maybe it'll be next week I get more emotional about it, but... Oh, yeah. These are Ned's last two chapters that we're reading. It's definitely... He deserved better. He did deserve better. The Starks all deserve better. That's true. I mean, we're really brought into the story, like, you're supposed to be a Stark bannerman, you know? I know. Yeah, that's true. At Ice and Firecon this year, I can't remember when it was, but one of the days... I think it might have been during the Drunk Ace Swap panel, but one of the days we, uh, I was like, come on, like, you have to be a Stark Bannerman. Like, raise your hand here if you're a Stark Bannerman. And, like, three people raised their hand. I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll just sit down. <laughs> I don't know if it was that night or not. I don't know. I don't know. We were all drunk. It was a weekend. <laughs> Man, uh, we did get, we, we have a couple emails that we've gotten, and we're so happy about it. Thank you for sending emails in. If you want to send an email in, ask us a question, just say hey, or DM us on Twitter, whichever. We are always open. Our email is girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Uh, we got a really cool iTunes review that I liked from Tomas Tungstrider. Which is an amazing username. Oh my god. Yeah. Obviously a reference, if y'all don't know, to Lomas Longstrider, but... But sexier. Yeah, sexier, uh, more linguistically inclined. I don't know. Linguistically. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and this iTunes review, also very, very sweet. Two girls, one cast. Which, gonna throw it out there, that was an idea that we had. Uh, that was. That was one of the naming. Two girls, one cast. What's not to love? Their POV-based reread method really helps stay in the mind of the characters. A nice change-up from your regular reread. Jump on board. They're just getting started and will give you all kinds of new insights. Besides, anyone whose accent makes wolf sound like wolf is okay in my book anyway. Is that directed at me? It's definitely you. I've definitely thought about oh. it before when you <laughs> when you say wolf, and I'm like, how adorable. My wife is so cute. <laughs> I can't help it. I like. I think it's just like like you. Me and you were talking about earlier, but readers' vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You know, you grow up being kind of a lone wolf, wolf, yeah. wolf. You know, and reading things more than like talking to people about them. So I have issues saying like. Las Vegas, if I don't think about it when I say it. One of my best friends makes fun of me so hard, but I will say it like Las Vegas. And she's always like, it's Las Vegas. Like I'm like, I can't help it. That's just how I say stuff. I've never been there. I've just read it in books. I don't know. 
And as I was telling you, I guess, like, I never... So since we're reading it in books, I just used to call telemarketers telemarketeers, and I don't know, maybe that's... Way more badass. Yeah. Sound like warriors. Warriors of the Brandishing phones. Yeah. (laughs) Surely. Yeah. That's like, I'm a big advocate for don't ever make fun of people for how they pronounce things, because that means they probably read it in a book and learned it in a book. (laughs) Yeah. That's true. Well, thank you, Tomas Tongstrider, Tom, Thomas, Tomas. I say Tomas because I have a friend named Tomas, so. That's his name now. You have two friends named Tomas now. Tomaso, Tomaso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the actual story that we're here to read. Yeah, uh, before we jump into Med 14, we're going to talk about, do our lightning round, what we missed. We only had one chapter between Ned 13 and Ned 14 this time, and that is John 6. Jon Snow gets sorted into Hufflepuff when his whole entire family is in Gryffindor. Just kidding. Wrong story. Uh, hoping to follow in his brave Uncle Benjamin's footsteps and ever thirsty for adventure, John learns he will be a steward for Lord Commander Mormont on the wall and not a ranger. Samuel Tarley tells John that he should be honored because he's being groomed for command, obviously. They say their vows in the gods would be on the wall, and after finishing their vows, receive a fleshy treat from Ghost. I think it's really cool also that this ends with John saying his vows at the heart tree when the last chapters had Ned at the heart tree. Kind of oh. saying his own vows. I didn't notice that. That's a great point. There's a lot of really good mirroring uh, in these, especially between 14 and 15. There's a lot of chapters between that, and it's very interesting how it all works out. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's... The construction here is, like... They really just kind of threw in this John chapter there because they needed a transition, of course, like, between the previous Ned chapter and this one, but this one fits really well. Absolutely. Lots of memories. So as for what happens in Ned 14, as we summed it up last time, I'm going to keep that as our overview. Betrayal. 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 That's it. That's the summary. That's the overview. I mean, that's like what happens. Yeah, literally, it's betrayal. Yeah. Ned's chapter, once more, opens up to him waking from sleep. Below, men are practicing fighting, and of course, this scene has some great outlining of what's about to occur in the very nearby future. Lannister men in the yard, iron-tipped lances through a man's head, Lannister guardsmen joking and cursing. Ned's concern grows as he wonders why Cersei has still not fled. Arya ends up getting permission to have one last dancing lesson, and Sansa asks why she can't get to say goodbye to Joffrey. To be honest, um, A, first of all, Arya is very fortunate that she is in this last dancing lesson when everything happens. And again, this sort of rift between the sisters comes because Ned has explained more or less to Arya why they distrust the Lannisters, but he never had that talk with Sansa. As for why Sansa can't, like, say goodbye to Joffrey, he just kind of settles on a, like, because I said so explanation, which sure, like, sometimes is a thing parents have to do, but as someone who was a preteen girl, also just a preteen in general, as someone who, like, went through adolescence, this is not the most effective method for someone of that age. 
Yeah, so, like, Sansa obviously responds with, it's not fair, which, like, yeah, that sounds just about right for the response from a, an 11-year-old girl speaking from experience. Yeah, I've been one, too, and you're definitely right. It's it's definitely a simple parenting rule. Like, when you have two kids, treating one unfairly in their eyes and not explaining to them why causes them to reject that ruling and revolt, like, completely from the parent. You can't just give little Jimmy a candy bar and then little Marco can't have one because he said so. That's, like, cardinal parenting rules, you know? Especially after Sansa did exactly what she thought was right and expected mm-hmm. of her. Uh, she followed every rule to be a lady. She went to all the events. She dressed properly. She was courteous and well-spoken, which actually has a lot of parallels to her wolf lady uh, and how she died after not really, you know, doing anything wrong, per se. Which, of course, we say uh, in our sage experience is only children. Right. Look, I don't, I don't have siblings, but I babysat a lot growing up. Like, I had... Probably two sets of siblings for six years of their formative lives that I can safely tell you, only child or not, like, you're in for a world of hurt if you deny one kid something they want, but give the other kid something they want. It's just bad. It's not good. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't work out. I don't imagine it would, especially, of course, at that age. Especially with those two kids. Dang, you got Arya, wolf-headed and blooded. Yeah. And Sansa, who stuck in her way. An hour later, um, Pycelle comes in, and his shoulders are heavy for more than just his chain. King Robert has passed away. Pycelle is talking about how may Robert find rest, and, you know, this is a, a bit of that last characterization that we're really going to get from Ro- like of Robert for a bit, or from Ned at least. No, Ned answered, he hated rest. The gods give him love and laughter and the joy of righteous battle. It was strange how empty he felt. He had been expecting the visit, and yet with those words, something died within him. He would have given all his titles for the freedom to weep. But he was Robert's hand, and the hour he dreaded had come. So again, in King's Landing, Ned can't even be himself, even grieving for his best friend. Even with Robert's passing, he's still, he's not thinking of himself as Ned Stark, he's still thinking of himself as Robert's hand. And rather than give himself that time to mourn, he realizes, he he jumps into action. He calls a small council meeting, and then, of course, Littlefinger tells Ned that the dark deity is requested of buying out the gold cloaks is done, because he is a liar. You'll never get a job on this side of town again, Littlefinger. I hate him so much. He's the worst. <laughs> he only gets worse from here on out. I know. We learn Renly has already fled, which Renly was relying on Ned's plan to keep his power in King's Landing. And when Ned said no way to that plan, Renly was like, okay, well, I got this flowery backup plan. Uh, his alliance with the Tyrells shouldn't be a surprise to any reader. He leaves accompanied by Loras Tyrell and 50 retainers. As the council reads the last will, Ned thinks to himself that Robert's heir is of age, Stannis Baratheon. Ned thinks it would be best to share all of this with the council, but he doesn't trust any of them. And he also thinks that Barristan 
Sir Barristan was honor-bound to protect and defend the boy he thought his new king. The old knight would not abandon Joffrey easily. And I just want to call this line out because as we announced last cast, we're going to be doing Barristan as our next POV. And I think it's kind of funny how honor operates as a reputation and affects people's perceptions. Because this line kind of cuts two ways. So Barristan is defending a false king uh, by failing to abandon Joffrey. He's defended tyrants like Ares. And some of the subtext of the story asks us if Barristan's actions are truly honorable. And then, of course, we're later going to see that Barristan has abandoned royal families twice. To be fair, he gets fired. But uh, sure. let's just put that out there. I mean, hey, if your name is Brendan B. Fish, he's going to abandon royal families three times. So, I mean, maybe. I don't know. We'll find out. Well, we'll, we'll, discuss, we'll discuss this more. We'll discuss this more in a few weeks. I'm actually really excited for Barristan, especially after this. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a real change of pace. And it it's also gonna obviously take us to the exact other side of the story all the way to down to dance so so just as ned asks to be named lord protector the royal steward comes in and says that the new king <laughs> joffrey uh is asking for his small council ned's surprised because it, cersei apparently moves extremely fast Absolutely, especially for all of the talking he's done throughout the chapter saying, why hasn't she made a move yet? Why hasn't she made a move yet? She was waiting for that drop. She could not have any power until Robert dropped. Ned, it's interesting because he refuses, you'll notice through these chapters, to say that Joffrey's the king. No matter what, which makes it that much more heartbreaking when he's forced to. You know, when he has to lie for honor or for love for his daughters and family and life. Oh, yeah. It's it's good construction because of that. Entering the throne room, uh, Ned feels comforted seeing how many gold cloaks there are. Dad, no! <laughs> Hint! It's a tarp! <laughs> Don't fall for it! Dad, no! And you get warning-ish of this, but the small detail, which you think is for Ned, but it's not, that, like, Janos Slint his armor is really ornate, which shows that he's been bought off, because, like, damn, like, he's just... Jano Slim. Commander of the Gold Cloaks. Yeah, it's like, why are you stunting? And everyone is all like, all hail Joffrey! He's here now, I guess. There's this line that Ned Stark slowly limped and hopped toward the boy who called himself King. And I like that characterization in that last phrase, because beyond us, of course, knowing that Joffrey isn't really King... We see this kind of idea come up again in that exchange later on, that really iconic exchange between Joffrey and Tywin, that any man who must call himself king is no king at all. Oh yeah, it also pays right into Ned refusing to call Joffrey king. Yeah. There's also this line, The first time he had come this way, he had been on horseback, sword in hand, and the Targaryen dragons had watched from the halls as he forced Jaime Lannister down from the throne. He wondered if Joffrey would step down quite so easily. Which, this is also, of course, another nod to Ned thinking how neither of these men are worth or deserving of the throne, let alone they should not be able to take it by blood rights. For sure. 
in this moment, is Ned very much like Jamie standing up against an unrightful king? Yeah, a little bit. In the same room with the dragons? Okay, that's In a way, um, yeah. And then from here on out, it's like a total fashion show where we talk about what everyone is wearing. We got gold cloaks, we got white cloaks, we got Cersei who's decked out in monochromatic power outfits. We have Joffrey wearing his Lannister colors, even though the whole throne room is still wearing Baratheon colors for obvious reasons. Like, boy who is calling himself king, right? his dad, like, what are you doing? Like, this is the time to really wear your Baratheon colors. I mean, never mind. Sandor is wearing a very statement dog helm, very sartorial fashion, and then everyone behind the throne is wearing Lannister crimson. Sandor's also wearing very, like, suit gray, dark clothes, uh, kind of dressed as a shadowing figure in this story. However, as we come to see later on after he has moved to Kingsguard and takes Ser Barrison's spot, Sandor's wearing, you know, he never wears the white scales or anything. He'll wear his gray armor, his suit gray armor with the white cloak eventually, but mostly with his, uh, his olive cloak when he shows in public and such. Uh, I digress. Cersei wears similar garb in A Storm of Swords in Jamie 3, a sea green dress, and she wears a pigeon egg-sized emerald on her finger in this chapter, kind of pointing to the marital ties she has to the throne. But in Jamie 3, she wears a necklace with a huge emerald. Emerald tends to represent balance and peace. We know as Vera's comments in chapter 15 that Cersei would rather a tamed wolf than a dead one. She also wears her tiara, which reiterates once more to Ned and everyone else in the throne room, I am the queen, just like when Robert and she visit Ned when he's first injured. Ned is surrounded by a sea of red and gold, gold cloaks and Lannister guards. Ned notes, thankfully, there are many gold cloaks, which means he thinks Littlefinger kept his promise, especially since they outnumbered the Lannister soldiers. Ugh, dad, bye. Dad, no. I think that's a great point that you pointed by bringing us back to this tiara that Cersei's wearing and it's not just that she's saying that I'm the queen to Ned like it's again it comes back to all those trappings of power especially since Ned doesn't end up calling her out explicitly as like a fraud she's wearing this crown that also reminds everyone else in the room where their fealty supposedly lies too she's absolutely obligating these vassals to remain loyal to the crown uh, especially interesting I thought of that she wears the ring to kind of remind everyone of her marital status and that she was the queen. She was Robert's queen. She was their king's mm. wife. And then also during the Jamie chapter in A Storm of Swords, she wears a necklace, which there's a lot of necklace language with her and Jamie whenever she's with him. Oh. Which I think is interesting and brings a little bit of attention to her throat. Oh, yeah, definitely. I've never noticed that, like, with all the Valencar stuff. That's a really great catch. We also get Ned physically leaning on Littlefinger because of his leg, which in many ways is pretty much what he's been metaphorically doing his entire time in King's Landing. His leg is in blazing pain, which, as we've established before, tells us how Ned is feeling emotionally through physical language. We know then that he's feeling really stressed out. And note Ned's internal language surrounding Cersei in this scene. Again, he's refusing to call her the queen, nor queen regent. He thinks and calls her my lady of Lannister. Which is also another really good point. It, remind, it reminds me of in later books where 
We have interactions between Kevin, Lannister, and Cersei, and Kevin's telling Cersei that her place is back at Casterly Rock, that she's Lady of the Rock. Ned is ready to drop his trump card. It's Robert's will, and he's ready to go, but... Cersei's horrible and all, but you totally have to respect this moment. She's like a badass power move queen in this moment, and she just tears the letter up. The eunuch carried the letter to Cersei. The queen glanced at the words. Protector of the realm, she read. Is this meant to be your shield, my lord? A piece of paper? She ripped the letter in half, ripped the halves and quarters, and let the pieces flutter to the floor. This idea of the paper shield is also going to come up again later in the story. That language, specifically of a paper shield, shows up in A Feast for Crows and an exchange between Sam and John. It's going to come up again in Dance when we see that exact same exchange again. From a letter where John is writing to show that the Night's Watch, I guess, takes no part, supposedly, even though they kind of are. And the fact that this paper shield doesn't really work for Ned shows us that this is probably going to blow up in John's face, just like it did for Ned, because of that similar wording and idea. This is also, of course, just the beginning. As the series and the war progresses, the Lannisters are going to break all of the rules, as they did with this paper shield. They're going to tear up the traditions that hold Westerosi society together. A dynasty for us! (laughs) Sorry. Oh my god. I thought that was appropriate. It is. I also love Cersei's just like badass power moving through the end of this chapter because she turns it all on him and she Uh just like turns him and she's like, I'm going to offer you the same advice you offered me, Lord Stark. Bend the knee, my lord. Bend the knee and swear fealty for my son, and we shall allow you to step down his hand and live out your days in the gray waste you call home. Do it. Dad, do it. Please. Yeah. Yeah. You should do it. God, Dad, please. Please. Was your, you should have done it. You should have just listened to the mean lady and gone home. <laughs> I realize now he was like given three chances, you know? He was like given a chance from Renly, Renly's plan, his little finger. Little finger, and then Cersei, and each time he was like, nah. My little bunny foo foo. Oh, man. He's just scooping up the field mice, popping them on the head. Oh. Uh, Ned tries to tell everyone that Stannis is the true heir, which, of course, to everyone else listening, makes himself totally sound like a traitor and also kind of makes him look like a huge douchebag because he's this grown man who's being mean to a bunch of little kids, especially when Marcel's all like, Mommy, isn't Joff the king now? And like, yeah, it's just not a good look. And did he think? through how he's going to do this like shouldn't he have led with as opposed to being like Stannis is the true king shouldn't he have led with like maybe I don't know Joffrey and the other children are bastards born of incest I mean it sounds crazy but he just doesn't he's just like oh no it's Stannis well and that's another point of where Ned puts his honor above his political aptitude unfortunately uh because he even was trying to kind of Almost shuffle it under the rug, saying, like, you know, Stannis is the true heir. Like, not trying to make it a big scene, almost, I feel like. Oh, it's a scene. Yeah, it's definitely a scene. Something that makes me so sick to my stomach about this is Cersei immediately puts this on Ser Barristan and the Kingsguard to seize Ned. And 
Sir Barristan is so conflicted by honor and he's surrounded by Stark men that he doesn't even have a chance to make up his mind. And Cersei puts the words in his mouth and says, do you think Sir Barristan stands alone, my lord? Obligating him, basically, and making his choice for him. But, like, isn't this exactly the same thing that Catelyn does, though, at the in the, the crossroads? Um, no, because Catelyn Stark is an angel and the Lannisters are garbage humans. They are garbage humans. And everything I just said would hold up in a court of legal laws, so <laughs> sue me. Joffrey, after this whole exchange, comes off as super unstable. He's just yelling, liar, and kill all of them, which sounds just like Ares, but also a little bit like Sweet Robin. Oh, yeah. A little bit. A little. But, like, Sweet Robin... <sighs> kind of like when you have a mom that's off her rocker, I guess that's... Yeah, Sweet Robin, like, only really has bark, you know, not any bite. Poor boy. Yeah. Well, he has no agency to have bite. Well, I mean, he will soon, but... Maybe. Somewhat. Maybe. Unless he just dies. He could. I, I give him 75% of the way through T-Wow. We'll get to this somewhere, but I give him, like, the last half of T-Wow he'll die. Yeah, probably. He's probably gonna die. <laughs> Poor boy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, then... Betrayal. Betrayal! Betrayal. And, sorry, we should be more angry. Betrayal! <laughs> and Betrayal! <laughs> betrayal, and is it a coincidence that Tomard was stabbed in the back, just like our dear father, metaphorically, in this entire situation? Yeah. Also, I think it's crazy that he, we like, built up Tomard, uh, George like only gave him a nickname and talked about him just to give us that connection so we'd be sad about it. Yeah. It's bullshit. I mean, yeah, because like it goes from what? Tomard gets stabbed and they're like, and then he saw Fat Tom fall and we're like, oh no, we know he's called Fat Tom because that's what our like girls called him and it's so sad. I don't know what that accent is. Um, Guess you shouldn't have uh, fat shamed him, huh, girls? So now he's dead. That's true. Not because of the fat shaming, just he died. As Ned's men fall around him, he notices it's not just his soldiers. It's Varley, it's Kane, it's Tomard, it's, it's every soldier that he knows by name and cares about. Every member of his household. And of course, then we get the worst line. Littlefinger with his, I did warn you not to trust me, you know. I'm just like, get the fuck out of here, you victim-blaming piece of shit. I Don't hate talk it. To me. Don't talk to me or my children ever again. George is like, his smile was apologetic. Shut up. Fuck you, little figure. Get a job. God. I'm so mad right now. I want to fight someone. Little finger would lose. He would lose that fight. Um. Anyway. That's it. That's, that's uttered 14. Dad, no. Dad. Okay, so. We got a lot. Oh my god, there's so. Okay, let's talk for a second before we jump into our lightning round. There is yeah. a heap of chapters, like just a pile of chapters between this. The pacing is really interesting. Like Aliana said earlier, there's a random John chapter that works out, but it's stuck in between the two Ned chapters that we just had. And that's great, but. It's like they kind of started stuffing and had to be like, oh, George was like, let's slow down a little bit because Ned has to die still. 
And then all of a sudden, it's rapid fire. Like, this is our most lightning of all lightning round. There's like 800 chapters in this. Yeah, and I I think it is well constructed in that way. Like, you know, we have that Ned chapter right before, you know, Ned chapter 13. And as I was saying, we yeah. have that John chapter. It's to create that passage of time. And then, of course, this like chapter ends with the betrayal and we have all these things. And it kind of builds that suspense by having all of those chapters between it. Because like the last thing we ended on was all of Ned's men dying and him just, you know, being captured. And we kind of hear a little bit about it from like the later chapters, as you can see, like we get some news of, oh, he's been captured and this is what happened. But we don't really know for sure. And it's it's a great buildup. It's very intense. Yeah. It's a smart way of construction, especially as, you know, when we come into Ned's chapter, we don't know. Like, it, it makes it feel like he's been down there a long time a little, but also building that suspense and just keeping Dad alive a little bit longer. It's great because Ned has the most chapters of the POVs, you know, in this book, I think, right? 15, I want to mm-hmm. say. He's the most. Yeah. And it's like he goes from having... Basically, the very beginning is, you know, he has a good amount of chunk of his chapters. You get to the middle of the book and it's like all of a sudden it's Ned heavy. You're getting a Ned chapter every couple chapters, no matter what, yeah. where you're waiting a little longer in between for like Sansa or Arya. Uh, so you're getting a Ned chapter like every two chapters. And then all of a sudden it stops and he like yeah. pulls that away from you. He pulls it out from under you and says, you have one Ned chapter left. You better read the next 700 chapters I put in this book first. Ned being captured, you start seeing the ball rolling for, like, here's what's going to start happening to all those Stark kids, as the, and you start to see the trajectories of their storylines and things like that. Yeah, it really gives you the cause and effect. It's like literally, actually, every single other person in the book, in terms of POVs, gets a chapter before we finally come back to Ned. Yeah, it's like the last walk for him. Yeah. And then we still don't, uh, as we'll go into later, we still don't get his death in this chapter. Uh, his death comes to us from a different chapter. Mm-hmm. Arya. <sighs> Damn, dude. All right. Lightning round. Give, give us Arya 4, Aliana. Yep. Arya 4. Arya's last lesson with her dancing master is cut rather short. When Lannister Guardsman, led by Sir Marin Trant, who is no true knight... <laughs> demands that Arya come with them. Sirio denies the request, beginning a dance with them to save her life. Arya finds her sword, Needle, in the stables, and evades capture by killing the stable boy and escaping through the Red Keep's dungeon. A place she's no stranger to. Hey, I'm full of it today. After Arya 4, we get Sansa 4. Uh, I think it's interesting that Sansa 4 is a chapter that mirrors how Eddard's chapters works. It starts in the middle of actions and recants what's been happening around her. Three days have passed since Sansa snuck out, telling Cersei her father's plans in hopes of staying with her beloved Joffrey. She is brought out of her house arrest before the Queen and the Small Council, where they tell her her father has been treasonous, and they have her write letters to her family members to inform them of what has happened. And then in John 7... We get a taste again of that larger mystical story where bodies of the men that accompanied Benjamin Stark on his ranging surface, while some, including Jeremy Riker, are quick to cast blame on wildlings, Sam notes distinct characteristics that say otherwise. 
John learns of King Robert's death and his father's treason charges and gets into a scuffle with Sir Alistair Thorne, who mocks him and Ned. Settling in for the night, John finds the undead body of one of the rangers in the Lord Commander's room and has to kill the monster, saving J.R.'s life. No big. <laughs> ah, no big. Yeah, that's, I was just thinking as you said that that is an intense chapter. Oh, like, yeah. These are, he keeps the suspense. I totally forgot how suspenseful this is. Brand 6, a really good chapter. Rob calls the Stark Bannermen for war at the news of his father's captivity, and the Karstark forces are the last to arrive at Winterfell. Forbidden to leave the castle since the events in the Wolfswood, Bran seeks prayer in the Godswood. Osha the Wildling interrupts his prayer, telling him about the old gods and the others. The Spearwife tells Bran that Rob should be riding north, not south. Bran relays the information to Maester Lewin, but Rob rides south. Free dad! Free dad! Then across the narrow sea, Daenerys finds herself fighting a losing battle and attempting to inspire her husband to head for Westeros. As Khal Drogo goes off to a hunt, Danny heads to the market and is offered a cask of wine from a merchant. Sir Jorah asks the merchant to drink first, suspicious that the merchant is attempting to poison the Khaleesi. And the merchant refuses and tries to run. Later in the evening, Drogo learns of the attempt on Daenerys' life and declares that he will attack the Seven Kingdoms and take back her chair. I will do this thing for you, Daenerys, moon of life. <laughs> I will take back your chair. Like, yeah, I mean, he totally, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like, rapey bits in that story, but that speech is pretty good. I will do this thing. Uh, Jason Momoa really brought that speech to life. Like, it's, like, pretty good. I can't hear it, you know, now any other way. I can see him in my head. It's a little different in my head if I'm, like, thinking of it from the books, but I still see Jason Momoa. In the books, you're like, yeah, that's cool. But, like, when Jason Momoa does it, you're like, yeah, they're coming. They're going to invade Westeros. That's happening. Yeah. Screamers. <laughs> yeah. In Catalan 8, the 900th chapter I've had to talk about already. <laughs> There's so many chapters, you guys. In Catalan 8, the war is frothing and brewing. Cat and Brendan Tully meet Rob and his raised levies at Moat Caitlin. This chapter establishes Rob's budding military prowess with gentle guidance from Catalan. Rob decides to go south, since the only options seem to be win or die. He decides to keep Tywin's troops busy with a feint down the King's Road. And then there's Tyrion, because he is also in this book, and there's so many people in this uh, story now. He's obligated to meet his father at the Inn at the Crossroads. Tyrion has nowhere easy to stash his new wild friends, the wild thornberries, and he's forced to bring them with him to establish trust in the already untrusting. Very much so mirroring Catelyn and Rob in the war councils in the chapter preceding this. Hey. <laughs> uh, Chloe wrote these. Tyrion, Tywin, and Kevin discuss the current situation in the Riverlands. Beric Dondarrion and the glory Jamie was finding with his sword upon the field. Is that a sex joke? I don't know. It might be a sex joke. Jamie's just so... Turns out he's, like, really innocent, like, sexually. 
I know, right? He's just like, my sister's real cute. Ew. Jamie, God. <laughs> my number is one. Um, news arrives that Rob Stark's host is traveling down the King's Road, and Tywin and Tyrion secure the clansmen against the north, with Tyrion at their lead. These were such simpler, linear, like, times, you know? They really were. All these chapters, just things happening. I do really love, I was really excited, that Catelyn and Rob chapter with the Tyrion chapter, it's mm-hmm. very interesting to see Tyrion trying to live up to his dad and Rob trying to live up to his dad's legacy, even in a way. So I love those two chapters next to each other. We finally make it to our very last chapter of the 100 million chapters we have read tonight already. Uh, <laughs> and that is Sansa 700. Just kidding. It's Sansa 5. King Joffrey holds court for the first time, calling for nobility to swear fealty to him and his reign. The small council appoints new titles and lands to those receiving. Sir Barristan Selmy is dismissed from the Kingsguard, and Sandor Clegane takes his place. Sansa Stark comes forward to beg for mercy from her father, and her gracious king says he will grant this mercy if Ned comes forward and names Joffrey as the one true king of Westeros. And finally, that brings us to our last Ned chapter, Ned 15. Dad, no. Dad, why? Dad, why? No, we're going to actually give a real overview for this, but, like, Dad, why? That's also a summary. Yeah, it's a big mood. The king dies and the hand is buried. Ned Stark finds himself in the black cells, leg throbbing and rage frozen within him. He begins to think on the tourney at Harrenhal, on blue bloody roses, and finally, days later, a new jailer comes to visit him. Varys. Varys brings him wine and advice. Serve the realm, or have your daughter's head served to you. What a good friend. <laughs> he, lo- he's, like, decent. Varys bringing wine and advice? Varys is your friend who's gonna, like, tell you sometimes, maybe, to your face, like, what are you doing? Sometimes. I think everyone needs a friend like Varys. That's true. Especially because, like, he's really open- about how he doesn't care what happens to you. And it's like, why lie, you know? That's true. <laughs> At least you know where he stands. Like, you don't have to question. Exactly. Yes. All right, so. Oh my God. This is like Coachella all over again. <laughs> so we just, we're just trying to string it out because we don't want the dead chapters to end. Ned, no, dad, no, why? Dad, why? Dad, don't leave me. This has been, like, a really good journey with you guys. This has been really fun with you. I'm so happy. Sad, though. Sad. Well, at least we have another character after this, so. We have a lot of characters after this. We, uh, we're gonna be doing this for at least four years, so I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, Well, Ned15, without further ado. George immediately hits us with the straw on the floor stank of urine, and you know that you're in the dungeons, just from that one line. No morning light to greet us or wake us from sleep. No windows and only darkness. In the cells below the ground, Ned remembers the crypts of Winterfell. The king dies and the hand is buried. There's a quick aside here, of course, uh, about how these dungeons are made, about Maegor the Cruel, and how he built this castle and then executed all of the builders, which, of course, is a common trope to characterize someone as a cruel tyrant. And you can see how that happens and a lot get a much better idea of his cruelty in the Sons of the Dragon novella, which 
If you haven't checked that out, it's in the anthology Book of Swords. Then you have Ned blaming everyone who turned on him for the position that he's in. But most of all, most of all, Ned is blaming himself because his men paid the price for his foolishness. And finally, all of Ned's chapters between sleeping and waking, the two blend into the eternal darkness. He slept and woke and slept again. He did not know which was more painful, the waking or the sleeping. When he slept, he dreamed. Dark, disturbing dreams of blood and broken promises. When he woke, there was nothing to do but think, and his waking thoughts were worse than nightmares. Which, again, blood and broken promises are very common Ned theme. Mm -hmm. I also want to talk a little more about what it is that ugh, Ned hopes and dreams, and how none of these actually go according to Keikaku. He made plans to keep himself sane, built castles of hope in the dark. Robert's brothers were out in the world, raising arms at Dragonstone and Storm's End. Alan and Harwin would return to King's Landing with the rest of his household guard once they had dealt with Sir Gregor. Catelyn would raise the north when the word reached her, and the lords of river and mountain and vale would join her. First of all, I just love that phrase. Built castles of hope in the dark. Building all these dreams. And... It is true that Robert's brothers are raising armies at Dragonstone and Storm's End, but as we all know, it's not going to go as Ned hopes. Those armies are going to end up turning against one another. And next we have that line about Alan and Harwin, who don't end up returning to King's Landing. They never actually succeed in defeating Sir Gregor and instead become a bunch of outlaws that make up the Brotherhood Without Banners. And then... Catelyn kind of raises some of the North. As we know from the previous chapters, the North is now getting ready to march south, but the Mountain and Vale never join her. So Ned has all of these big hopes and dreams, and they really are big hopes and dreams, and none of them really come to pass, which is sad. Yeah, none of it really bears fruit. It's very sad, especially because he was using those to keep himself sane. I know. He was telling himself this stuff. I mean, deep down, he probably knew it wouldn't happen. Ned cannot bear to bring himself to say aloud how he failed his best friend, who is now a deathbed hallucination companion in his dreams and in life. The king heard him. You stiff-necked fool, he muttered. Too proud to listen. Can you eat pride, Stark? Will Ara shield your children? That's not really a mutter, but can you really think of Robert muttering? I can't. Oh, no, absolutely. And also, I'm so glad we're doing this because it's, you know, one last ride with you as King Robert. We won't get to it again till Cersei, probably. I forgot that, like, <laughs> that I guess that line was in there. I was like, I have to do it, obviously. Um, <laughs> this is your calling. This is, this is it. This whole line about, like, will honor shield your children, it's going to come into play as the chapter progresses. But no, Honor ultimately does not protect his children. Honor has not protected his sister's children, and he knows this already. In fact, Honor is the killer for him and his children in a way. Uh, the real Sansa Stark dies, quote-unquote, in King's Landing. She's replaced as basically a hostage, a puppet for her claim. She doesn't get to be the life she had as a kid. Arya dies and becomes no one. 
John dies honoring his Stark family and Arya, obviously, in the Night's Watch mutiny. Uh, and then, of course, it brings me to the line in John 8 in A Game of Thrones. Tell me, John, if the day should ever come when your Lord Father must needs choose between honor on one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? Well, we know what he's going to do now. And we're seeing it right now. We're going to see it right now, and it tells us exactly everything that we need to know, of course, with that exchange that happens in John 8, where, because it's, of course, talking about a brother's love, and a newborn, and, a, and like, family, but anyways... Finally, after days of waiting in the dark with no food, light, or sound, Ned hears footsteps. He immediately tries to ask about his daughters. Please, my daughters. The dungeon no longer stinks. It smells like nothing, which tells us about how long he's been there. I'm kind of wondering, is this like a metaphor for King's Landing? You know, those sayings of like, you know, if it doesn't smell or something, you've been in the doghouse too long, or you are the whatever yeah like ned was there far too long yeah between sleeping and waking ned dreams of the tourney at harrenhal he smells and sees everything compared to the lack of smell and sight in the dungeon i think this passage is so great because george really gives you a sense of being at the tourney it's what i always think about whenever i'm thinking about the rebellion and trying to picture the events that happened mm -hmm. it was spring the smell of pollen and warm days and deep green lawns and cool nights and the taste of wine. He thinks on Brandon's laughter, Robert's success in the melee, Jamie's knighting, and Gerald Hightower fastening the cloak around his shoulders. Uh, the smell of pollen is not, not something that I associate with something awesome. But in general, this is... Spring. I, I like spring. I hate it. Pollen's ruining my life. This is great juxtaposition on George R. R. Martin's part of like how he writes these two different settings. Now Ned's dreams are everything that is waking life is not. They're vivid, they're full of different sensations, unlike the dungeon. Ned remembered the moment when all the smiles died, when Prince Rhaegar Targaryen urged his horse past his own wife, the Dornish princess Elia Martell, to lay the queen of beauty's laurel in Lyanna's lap. He could see it still, a crown of winter roses blue as frost. It's interesting that everyone fell to Rhaegar in the lists, especially now that we know that Harrenhal was obviously a little bit of a setup of a thing. I mean, Brandon, Bronzion Royce, even Arthur Dane uh, fell to Rhaegar. And obviously Rhaegar, you know, went into training to become, you know, well fought and have good swordsmanship. But do you think he was actually winning or that it was like a he's a prince and also Harrenhal was a setup thing? I do think that Harrenhal was like a setup in that it was counsel for some of those high lords to meet. But I don't think people intentionally fell to Rhaegar, especially as we are going to see later on in those Barristan chapters where he's all like, I should have tried harder, dude. Like, he he yeah. did want to win. I think Rhaegar just wanted to win more than everyone else. I wonder why. I don't know. It's just like... I wonder what kind of reason he would have. Huh. Better be a good one. No one knows. No one knows. No one yeah, knows. right? Yeah. No one knows. Ned reached out his hand 
to grasp the flowery crown, but beneath the pale blue petals the thorns lay hidden. He felt them, clawing at his skin, sharp and cruel, saw the slow trickle of blood run down his fingers, and woke, trembling in the dark. Well, of course this line is about Liana, this is also very much what Ned's situation is like now. He reached for a crown, made not of petals, but instead of metal, and instead of grasping those antler horns and securing the Baratheon crown, he found thorns, and he found betrayal from pretty much everyone who was around him. Man, I guess Ned uh, saw that crown's beauty, but not the iron underneath. He saw Robert's <laughs> beauty, and... Dude, he, like, thinks a lot, sidebar, he thinks a lot about Robert and how beautiful he was in these chapters. I don't think we cover it anywhere, but he thinks a lot of it. He, like, talks about Robert's beautiful clear eyes, blue eyes, during that, like, scene where he's his hallucination. And, like, he just, like, talks about how it was Robert when he was, like, 16, 17, 18, and he's beautiful, and he's muscly, and has beautiful blue eyes. And then his face turns into a giant fissures. That wasn't good. But the rest of it was, like, real sexy. I'm like, Ned, put it away, buddy. Yeah. There's a lot of R plus L equals J exposition here. In The Promise Me, his sister had whispered from her bed of blood. She had loved the scent of winter roses. Coupled with, he could see it still, a crown of winter roses, blue as frost. These thoughts are linked by her love of roses and her love of flowers, as we continually hear in Ned's chapters. Ned notes Cersei does not actually want him dead thinking Cat still holds Tyrion. We know that Tyrion has escaped, so he doesn't have that leverage, but a few chapters later, Cat will have an even more valuable hostage that makes keeping Ned alive much more important, Jamie. Not that it stops Joffrey, who is an idiot, of course. He's the worst. And then finally, after a few days, we'd no longer get, like, the, I guess, thin gowler who has a goatee or something. A different Gowler appears, and oh my gosh, wow, it's Varys, who for some reason everyone still thinks is a magician. And this kind of actually makes me wonder, we've gotten this like idea of Varys as a magician so many times throughout this book, that I kind of wonder if George R. R. Martin was going in a different direction with Varys first, kind of like how... I don't know. He he had a lot of, as you can see in the 1993 letter, a lot of different ideas of where the story was going, and you can see some of like that foreshadowing planted. But part of me kind of wonders of like, yeah, was he going in a different direction with Varys? Because we see that several other Master of Whispers, such as Bloodraven and Tyanna of the Tower, do wield magic powers. There's also, of course, kind of that irony for when the story does develop. Uh, where Varys, whom everyone calls as a magician, actually kind of hates magic. And also, I guess, Varys is very thirsty because he would also like some wine. I wonder, yeah, if George didn't exactly have him nailed out 100%. I think he knew Varys would end up a supporter for fake Aegon, and I think he knew that Varys had mystical ways of doing things, but he definitely uh, played with the magical Master of Whispers idea with him, and decided against it at the end, probably. The show definitely wants to pit the R'hllor versus Varys thing very hard, but they also dropped the fake Aegon plot, which I think would have clouded making Varys magical. I guess you can't be both, Baldy. I do think that George was had an idea for Varys being, I guess, that Aegon, fake Aegon, Aegon, some, some other like, person supporter. Uh, and I, I, 
also really get the sense that George R. R. Martin is feeling things out, like as you said, didn't have Varys completely nailed down yet, or he changed his mind like he does with Jamie, who gets a lot of foreshadow- foreshadowing thrown his way in this book of like how he's going to take the throne, but that doesn't... He obviously goes in a different direction with Jamie, um, but I guess at least like some of that gardening lets him reappropriate what may have been some of those ideas for Varys to others, to these other masters of whispers. I also like to think that in some ways that lack of magic on Varys' part in terms of his methods combined with the cruelty of what it takes to make those little birds of cutting out children's tongues, making them crawl in walls and stuff, kind of makes Varys more horrific than if he had been magical. It almost makes me wonder like where George put that plot for Aegon then. You know, like who is Aegon going to end up having that will be his magical person? Yeah. Well, maybe none. I don't know. Maybe like that's maybe. the whole thing. Like Danny comes off as like this witch with all this magic and Oh yeah, yeah. Aegon's holistic and Yeah. Yeah. Ned asks if the wine is the same poison that they gave King Robert, and Varys is like, Whoa, buddy, like I am the only person that is on anything that even closely resembles your side right now. So maybe you should be a little nicer. Like don't don't think I'm gonna kill you, okay? I don't have the time or the energy. He brings news of Arya, Sansa, Catelyn, and Tyrion to Ned. Then Ned's like, uh, why didn't you stand up for me then? Uh, why didn't you, like, fight against them? And Varys is like, uh... Do I have to explain this to you, <laughs> He's dude? like, I seem to recall that I was unarmed, unarmored, and surrounded by Lannister swords. The eunuch looked at him curiously, tilting his head. When I was a young boy, before I was cut, I traveled with a troop of mummers through the free cities. They taught me that each man has a role to play in life as well as mummery. So it is at court. The king's justice must be fearsome. The master of coin must be frugal. The lord commander of the king's guard must be valiant. And the master of whisperers must be sly and obsequious and without scruple. A courageous informer would be as useless as a cowardly knight. As useless as nipples on a breastplate. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, Ned seems to think that Varys, who can do nothing and is useless as a warrior, should have fought for him in the throne room, which continues to speak kind of who Ned is, that he believes he should do the right thing, even if it costs him his life, even if the odds are against him, which of course we've seen this. Various thinking that each person has a role to play also shows us how he thinks about politics, especially as he weaves a narrative about a new young dragon, Prince Aegon, later. As for whether or not Varys is going to help out Ned in the cell, Varys interestingly says no, he will not free Ned because then all suspicion falls on him. Which... Of course, is exactly what happens when Varys, partially with the help of Jamie, kind of not. He like he's like, oh no, I'm not gonna open. He didn't need to be nudged that much, but he frees Tyrion from the cells in the Storm of Swords, and I think it's funny because he says to Ned that he's not gonna do the exact thing he does for Tyrion, and I think that's because he realized that with Ned, he made the mistake of letting the Lannisters get their hands on his. His prized hand, um, as we know from his earlier plans with Illyrio, 
surprise hand before, and he's not about to let it happen again in A Storm of Swords. He learns his lesson from Ned's beheading. He's like, no chances this time. We get him out before anyone has a chance to execute him. Yeah, and Eliana touched on this a little bit last episode, I want to say. But it's interesting that where originally there was the idea of sending Ned to be with Daenerys, and then Tyrion would have been the next hand that he sent, but Tyrion gets sent to Aegon, which kind of also says a lot about wanting Daenerys to survive, because while Ned is a good man and while he is an honorable man, sending Ned to Daenerys may not be the right choice for her and wouldn't do much for her small council or her, you know, queen's council. Ned would be wanting to do the honorable thing and they would probably clash a lot, especially with all the knowledge she learned from Jorah about Ned, quote unquote about. Shut up, Jorah. Lothar Burns better. Uh, But Tyrion, he sends first to Aegon. So it's interesting, especially knowing that Varys supports Aegon over Daenerys's rule. I think that's just such an interesting little connection that you touched on. Do they even say for sure that they are trying to send Ned to Danny? Because it could have been that they were also trying to send him to Fagon. Aegon, yeah. Like if, they're, if they're talking about how like one if one hand can disappear before and that hand was John Connington who of course ends up with Aegon. Like. Well, and that's what I was kind of thinking was he was the one that they sent to Aegon, so they wanted a different hand for Daenerys. Uh, I, the, the only thing I'm like unsure of, and maybe like stuff changed, but I do... In A Dance with Dragons, Illyrio says to Tyrion that he intended for Danny to die out there with the Dothraki. So it, it might not have been that Ned would be... It might not have been that Ned would have been hand to Danny, but hand to Viserys. Ah, right, right. They still need the narrative of, like, false, like, crazy, quote-unquote false, like, but, like, crazy Targaryen comes in, like, ruins everything. And they're like, do you want the brood of Mad King Ares, or would you like the son of valiant Prince Rhaegar? Because, you know, Ares' brood, like, makes a mess of everything, and then Prince Aegon gets to, like, fix everything. Yeah, Rhaegar's good son, and Rhaegar was the good one. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, Varys basically is talking with Ned about Robert's death. Varys tells Ned that the mercy that he basically gave to Cersei is what killed Robert, uh, and that one way or another he was going to die. Cersei was always going to kill him. The Madness of Mercy, Ned calls it. We learned that Rob is marching south to free his father, which reminds me a lot of Brandon marching south to demand Rhaegar free Lyanna, except, as we know, it was too late, which I guess it was in this case also. This one's not too late, but it also, similar idea, like Rickard coming down to free Brandon. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That whole entire, the whole fam. The whole fam. It's a family affair. As they say whenever uh, Starks head south. Yep, they melt. <laughs> I guess it's not funny. I'm just thinking of them as snowmen. Um, Aww. Do you want to build John Snowman? Do you want to make John Snowman? Okay. Um, oh my god. As Varys begins speaking 
of how Rob has started heading south and then how Cersei very much fears Stannis, uh, especially that Stannis has a claim, but also that Stannis, unlike Ned, is a man who is not known for his mercy. We, in this chapter, begin to see the preamble to that War of the Five Kings all just here in these Ned chapters. And of course, a lot of it starts because of Ned's mercy. Um, Ned's mercy is and honor is why he doesn't take up Renly on his offer. It's why, I guess, he thinks Robert died. Varys's ex- explanation also brings up different kinds of honor. The kind that is done for one's own honor, for the self, and kinds that are done for the realm. Uh, Varys seems to, at this point, be talking about the greater good. For so long, Ned has had that ability to conflate the two, that his own honor is what's best for him but by doing the honorable thing it's what's best for his people the land but now with his own life at stake and everything going like crazy in king's landing the choices are not so easy various lays out the political climate that will now ensue and all of cersei's enemies jamie with the river lords liza in the eerie the martels in the south and now the north in rebellion Ned has a chance of survival if he plays his cards right. The wall with your brother and that base-born son of yours. The thought of John filled Ned with a sense of shame and a sorrow too deep for words. If only he could see the boy again, sit and talk with him. Pain shot through his broken leg beneath the filthy gray plaster of his cast. He winced, his fingers opening and closing helplessly. His leg is hurting again as Ned feels emotional distress thinking about John. But also, you know, we just finished up a John chapter where he burns his hand because, you know, zombies. Uh, this action where Ned is, his fingers are opening and closing helplessly. He's flexing his hand, and I think it's interesting because it's very much the same way that John flexes his hand, opens and closes it from here on out in order to keep his hands limber. Interestingly enough, Catalan does it too. Oh my god, I all these all these hand things and then of course you got Jamie. You got Jamie. He can't flex You gotta really hand it to him. Hey. Uh, also Ned is the hand too. He so. is. He is. Uh, I also want to touch on uh the boy in that sentence, how Ned thinks of John as the boy. We kind of mentioned it before, but Ned tends to speak of those that are not close kin as the boy. He says it about Aegon Targaryen, about Robert Aaron, about Gendry Waters, and especially Jon Snow. No familiarity, and he never refers to Jon as his son himself. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, well, he's his son. It's Ned and Lyanna Stark's son, because they're Targaryens secretly. Oh, right? Yeah. Right? You said Ned and Lyanna Stark? Yep, they're Targaryens, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's why, uh, that's the story. That's why, you know, Beerys is trying to support Ned, because he knows, right? Uh, that's how I met your mother. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, I was born with her. Uh, really is, so funny, that is, like, a story for a couple of people in this, in this uh, book. it's Rhaegar and Lyanna, get over it. <laughs> uh, Vague, not Vagar. The dragon does not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was Vagar. I know. This would be such a better story if it was Vagar. Ooh, 
yeah, we had like, okay. Varys presses that he is doing all this because he wants to serve the realm. And then in the end, the story, Ned's story, it all just comes back to the children again. Varys reminds Ned that while he might not care about his own life, Sansa's life is at stake and uh, Cersei's definitely going to remember that. You know, Cersei, who only received Ned's mercy for the sake of her own children. And then, of course, back to Ned, who has thought repeatedly about the Targaryen children throughout this entire story. He's finally reminded about it towards the end, not from his own thoughts, which don't end his chapter. Ned's story ends with Varys, reminding him of the small innocents whose deaths have haunted him for years and goads him into making a choice. The last words of any Ned chapter, and they aren't even his. The choice, my dear Lord Hand, is entirely yours. Dad, no! Uh, Dad. Man. Dad. Head. I mean, that's the last... That's it. That's the last Ned chapter, guys. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna be quiet. Yeah, I need a cigarette, and I don't even smoke cigarettes. But I need, like, two of them. Dude. Emotional. Because it was all supposed to keep going. He was supposed to be fine. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine, right? Uh, Have you finished this book? Is it gonna be fine? He's gonna go, he's gonna take the black... And then go hang out with John and like Benny Boy is gonna come home. Yep. That's not what happens, Aliana. He dies, dude. He dies, like He straight up dies. It's all just because Joffrey was like a wild card. Wild card. Wild cards. Oh my god. My favorite series. I love it so much. <laughs> Just trying to keep the humor here. I know, I know, Sam. I'm like, how do I deal with dad dying? Wow. Well, the good news is we can put it off how we feel for another week because our next episode is going to be an overview of all of Eddard's chapters that we just read through. Uh, we're kind of going to do that. We obviously had the beginning overview that we did for uh, our first episode with Eddard 1 and a bit of an overview. So next time... We are just going to do a wrap-up and an overview and get real sad. Yeah, next time we're just going to cry on here. Uh, We're also going to talk about Eddard's actual death, like when it actually happens, um, that chapter. We're going to discuss the different possibilities for what could have happened to Ned. Like, did Ned warg into a pigeon at the last second? Did he warg into the sword ice at the last moment? I don't know. Did he warg into the pigeon-sized emeralds? I mean, maybe. Maybe. You're the worst. (laughs) We're gonna talk about reactions to his death from other point-of-view characters. Uh, What his death and his life meant to the story and to the reader. We'll talk about Rhaegar and Lyanna and Jon, of course. We'll talk about some of that King's Landing politics... And things that we learned, things that we want to know more of or wanted to know more of. Cersei was so good in that chapter, dude. She was. She was like, 
all of Ned's chapters, she was a boss. Like, she was competent. Yeah. She was competent this book, you know? Yeah. She goes downhill after the whole, like, kid dies thing, but... Wouldn't you? I mean, fair. Yeah, I think I would. I mean, Catelyn holds it together somehow, but not completely. <laughs> yeah, she holds it together for, like... A couple chapters, and then she dies. Not a couple, like, a lot of chapters, I guess. I wish we were doing Catelyn next, in a way. But I think it's better that we're doing someone not cattling, because I think that's too easy. Barristan is good. That's going to be real fun. And and again, like, it gets us to the other side of the story, right? And not just staying here, like, in the first three books. Yeah, it gets us all the way down to dance, which I think will be interesting. Yeah, it'll be really fun to cover. Uh, we already have a guest that will be on one of the episodes. We're branching out. We have to diversify, I guess. I guess. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this journey. Go, like, cry if you need to, I guess. And when you're done doing that, you can come back to us and find us over on Podbean. Tell us how you feel over on, like, iTunes. If you want to get sad with us, you can also find us on Google Play and on Acast. You can send us a tweet or a DM, a direct message of sadness at Twitter. Our Twitter username is Girls Gone Canon. You could send us an email if you want to get real intimate. Uh, we do have an email address we will email with you, and that is girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Feel free to send in questions of anything you want to hear on our overview for Ned next week. We definitely want to hear it. We would love to answer some questions. We do have a couple pretty cool questions and emails we've gotten that we are going to talk about in this episode. Yeah, we've saved quite a few because we think that they make more sense for the overview and for this all-around all discussion about Ned. Yes, everything Ned. I know, I'm really sad. Are you really sad I know. right now? I'm, I'm just sad. I, yeah. It's just like, it's it's like saying goodbye to a friend, you know, like, this is our last Ned chapter. Dude, we're going to do this a lot, so we have to get better. Like, a lot of people die. That's true. I Well, some of them don't. Some of them, it's just like, I don't know what's going to happen to them. Where's the next book? Uh, some are doing okay. We're fine. There's some that I don't mind, I guess. Like, uh, let me think. I don't know. Whatever. All right. Well, goodbye, everyone. I'm Eliana also known as Glass Table Girl on the Mason Monthly Podcast and on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. You can also find me on Twitter as Arythmetric. I've been Chloe. I'll still be Chloe after this, but I've been Chloe for most of this also. Uh, you can find me as at Lies and Arbor on Twitter, at liesandarbor.tumblr.com to read some stuff that I put on there, I guess. I write it. And you can also check out Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History on Twitter and on Podbean. It's Drunk A Swath. Uh, and that's a wrap on Net Chapters. You guys have been the listeners. You guys rock. Just go drink a glass of wine and hug each other. Yeah, pour one out. Pour one out for Dad. Take a shot for Ned. Dad, why? Yeah. Dad, no. Dad, no. Bye, guys.